Welcome, listeners, to FF Plus, a spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, interviews, and discussion. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me tonight to discuss the newest DC animated film are my friends Patrick. Hey, everyone. And Coles. Good evening. So as I mentioned, the newest DC animated film is out, and these are a series of movies that we all three particularly enjoy on the whole. The DC Universe as it were, animated universe, is actually wrapped up. The first iteration of that has been completed, and this film is sort of a standalone. It's not really part of the continuity of the previous long run of movies that they wrapped up with Justice League Apocalypse War. So don't worry about any continuity issues with this film. You can just take it in and enjoy it uh, right off the bat all by yourself. So film is Batman Soul of the Dragon. It is directed by Sam Liu, and it is based on an original story written by Jeremy Adams. What's it about? An all-new original animated film, Batman Soul of the Dragon, does a deep dive into Elseworlds vibes by putting Batman in the midst of the swinging 1970s. Faced with a deadly menace from his past, and along with his mentor, O-Sensei, I'm going to crack up every time I say that name, Bruce Wayne must enlist the help of three former classmates, world-renowned martial artists Richard Dragon, Ben Turner, and Lady Shiva, to battle the monsters of this world and beyond. So, as I mentioned, I just wanted to make sure everybody knows this is an original story, and I think that that's pretty cool. And I'll actually lead with that as one of my likes. This is not based on a long-running comic book property, and These characters have been in DC Comics before, but some of them are not familiar. Ben Turner is Bronze Dragon, or Bronze Bronze Dragon, Bronze Tiger. So you probably have heard of him, maybe by his other name. Uh, Richard Dragon is sort of a mashup character who really is just Bruce Lee (laughs) Uh, from Enter the Dragon, essentially, is who he is. And, you know, Lady Shiva is a known character, but these are... You know, the the film involves some villains and some other side characters that are in DC Comics history, but they're periphery characters. They're not mains. And so you may not have experienced them before, and they definitely have not come together in this specific story before this was written, which I thought was really cool. And that was one of the things that I really liked about it. Um, With that being said, I will kick it to you guys. Kales, how about we start with you? What were some of the things you liked about this one? The supporting characters is number one on my list. Um, Richard Dragon reminds me of what Bruce Lee would be if he was like a globetrotting international spy going across the world and solving mysteries and taking down bad guys. Michael J. White's Ben Turner is essentially a mimic of Black Dynamite. He just reminded me so much of Black Dynamite to me with the airfro and the costume, the way he was dressed, the slang, the charisma, and the badassery for the most part. And Lady Shiva is amazing as well. She's like a just an efficient, like humble fighter. Yeah, she's a person that doesn't look like much, but when you get close to her, she can like deal out some pain. And I love seeing all of them work with Batman, they felt included in this adventure. Most times when you have a superhero film and you have the one main hero that everybody knows, and then you have these sidekicks, the sidekicks can sometimes feel obligatory. They can feel out of place or they can feel like 
not really much to note about, but I felt that the supporting characters in this film were the strongest aspect. And they even overpower what Batman gets to do. We didn't see a lot of Batman in this film, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It represents a change of pace, what we usually see from a Batman film. The second like would be the hand-to-hand combat. I like the action scenes. They were very well done, especially the visuals as far as explosions, bullets, movement, um, and even the wisecracks that go on between characters. I think there is one scene where Richard Dragon is talking to the villain in the film, and the villain's talking about, I'm waiting for my god, and Richard Dragon's like, I'm waiting for your god. So I can kick his you know what. And <laughs> that made me um laugh out loud. And there are some other nice moments of clever banter between the characters. Oh Sensei was probably my favorite character. I love the uh, the drops of knowledge that he was given to Bruce Wayne, especially in their flashback scenes where he's teaching him certain things about how the way the world works, how that you can't control all the evil that's in the world. Like you could defeat one part of evil but then that would just break off and there'll be still amount of evil in the world but you could only control what you can control and i felt that that was a good message that really got towards the the inner mind of bruce wayne's psyche which is what i'm always interested to see in a batman film even though there wasn't much of it but i'll get to more of that in my dislikes other than that the 70s eros blaxportation influence was a nice draw for me because i'm in love with that era you know shaft um foxy brown and just many other colorful characters it just really was a good replica of that era the voice acting is good as well and some parts of the story are decent i do wish that some areas were stronger we're going to get to that in the deep in the dislikes especially for this being an original story by dc and not based on any of the comics so that's all that I can give you. <laughs> all right, Patrick, what about you? Well, this is one of those stories where if you're not familiar with Batman, that's okay. And I think that's a strength of one of these DC animated movies is that the name Batman is the draw. And for some who love Batman, as you do, Aaron, it could be a turnoff because there's not much Batman here. You and I were joking offline earlier today how we might want to rename this movie Bruce Wayne and his friends, colon, and then the story name. And so you've got a lot going on here. Coles mentioned the ensemble cast, and I think that's a huge strength. I love the fact that we're getting a different kind of mythology of Bruce. We're not getting your quintessential, my parents died, here's what I need to do to rectify that necessarily. It's there, it's part of the chemistry, part of the DNA, but there's this focus on taking characters that you know characters that you're familiar with, parts of history's cinema, cinematic history that you're familiar with, and lumping it all into this really fun adventure story. And I love the homages to the different types of things like Enter the Dragon and the the black exploitation shaft, these things like that, the big trouble in Little China. It all seems to work even though at times it feels a little bit rushed, but you're talking about an hour and 22 minutes, you got to put a lot in there. That being said, I thought what I was really impressed with was the cohesiveness of the story. It really felt complete. It didn't feel like, hey, let's do this and let's show them this and let's make people laugh when we do this. It really felt like it had some weight to it. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to throw in a bunch of 
throwback stuff and nostalgia and things that people are going to be familiar with, doing it purposefully is always going to get my thumbs up. And I think that those things really made this movie stand out to me as a not really a great Batman story, but a great DC animated story. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a good DC animated story. And I really enjoyed the aesthetic like you guys did. It's got a really fun adventure film opening sequence that is straight out of a James Bond movie. And I love that you mentioned that, Coles, because it does feel like this mashup of James Bond and Enter the Dragon and Batman Begins and Big Trouble in Little China. So, you know, I, I hate to always reduce movies to this, but it is a good way to convey to you, the listener, what you might be in for. So if you think that those four things that I just mentioned off the top of my head are cool things to like throw together into a pot and see what comes out. Well, you might like this movie. Um, I liked the voice acting as well. I think one of the strengths of the voice acting, and I will say this, there are special features on the disc for this one. And I got a chance to check them out. They enhanced my feelings about the film, which is almost always the case when I get a chance to dive into more information. One of the featurettes is all about the voice actors and it's them talking about how important it was to be playing their character because they grew up on martial arts films and on films of these eras. And so they really embraced these characters. These weren't just voice actors, famous voice actors necessarily who got pegged to do this movie. These were specifically chosen actors to do this film who had buy-in and had a reason to care about the portrayal. And I, and I think that shines through in the uniqueness of how each one kind of shows up in the movie world. And that was great. I love James Hong, first of all, anytime I hear his voice. So like you guys, like O-Sensei, I think is the most silly, ridiculous name for someone because it literally is O-Sensei is his name. Every time I'm thinking, it's like, it makes me feel like Scarlett O'Hara is saying it. Like, oh, Sensei, my Sensei, or something. I don't know. But James Hong is a beast. And when James Hong is dropping knowledge on you, Coles, like you're talking about, you know, he could be doing it like this. He could be doing it as a goose in Kung Fu Panda. But whatever it is, I'm there to listen. Um, there's a cool awesome sword in this movie called soul breaker that has some magical elements to it. And I love that kind of stuff. I liked that a lot. There is a cult of evil ninja guys called the Cobra cult, which is hilarious and really reminded me a lot of the foot uh, clan in Ninja Turtles. I thought that they were similar to those, but I think it's a very colorful movie. Uh, it's got a great soundtrack. The aesthetic is strong. Everything about it screams 70s. They That was the other special feature I watched, guys, was almost, I think, 30 minutes long, maybe even longer, all about how culture was in the 70s, from the Vietnam War to black exploitation to kung fu movies making their mark in Western cinema, etc., and, and how all of that influenced this, how much care they put into the sound effects. I was telling you, Patrick, offline earlier today, they actually show in the special features, they're in the studio... And they're giving examples of how they made some of the sound effects, which I hear in my background right now. My dog is making sound effects, too. I guess he he hears me talking about them. But, like, what they did in the film is they, at one point, were, like, breaking celery in front of a microphone to make a sound of a smack. 
right? Which I thought was really, really interesting and neat. This is a special features I can highly recommend if you want to buy this disc, if you enjoy the movie, I think it's worth it. Um, I like the martial arts scenes. I like the action at times with swordplay. Uh, I'm always going to be in for great swordplay and not just a bunch of shooting. So those were cool as well. All right, so let's move and let's talk about anything you didn't like. I guess we'll go with the same order. Kales, what was there that like frustrated you about this one? I'll start with the villain or the villains because it's a murderous cult of religious zealots. Um, I'm I'm kind of getting tired of seeing the constant comic book battle villainous plot where it all depends on dominating the world or annihilating each person on the planet to create like a new world or a new society. I feel that it makes me, this film made me appreciate villains like the Joker, Black Mass, and even Penguin to an extent because they don't need to fall back onto, oh, I'm just going to end the world in order to create terror and urgency for Batman. They get at him in different ways. There's so many areas that you could have taken this story especially with this colorful cast of supporting characters that we haven't seen together in this film i expected a little bit more stronger um stronger venom from the villain and i didn't really get that it's kind of mostly forgettable um i don't even remember what the villain's name was that's how unmemorable it was and also i would would have liked that the story got deeper into Bruce Wayne's psyche. The part of the appeal for me for a new Batman film, a live action or anime that gets announced is that it could be more opportunity to get into the psyche of Bruce Wayne. I mean, consider me old fashioned and plain, but I love when we are able to understand why Batman does what he does. There's been so many interpretations and so many, you know, allegories and illusions and just metaphors that are baked into that story there's a treasure trove of things that creators and writers and directors can get into with Bruce Wayne and creating a fully original Batman story. But it's this movie is original and it's good. It's action adventure. I mean, if you're a if you're even the most general Batman fan, you will get a lot out of this. But if you're looking for something deeper, if you're looking for something new, then this is probably not your film. I couldn't even recommend this to the biggest DC diehards. Now, Aaron, you might think differently because you're more dipped into the comic book um, world than I am, which I'm trying to improve on. But for me, this film represents more of the same from DC, which is not bad because this is still a good product, but I wish they could have went a little bit deeper in showcasing the inner world of Bruce Wayne and maybe finding a better villain to be a target for these colorful cast supporting characters. Patrick? I will echo what Colette said regarding Bruce Wayne, Batman, the, the thing is Batman is really what you're coming to see. And the rest of the cast should be just that. And when you can take him out completely and still have a pretty good story, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I think that for the director and the screenwriter, this is a great sandbox to play in. But when you have such an icon like Batman, you are, really playing with an expensive toy at that point. And you need to be able to give your audience some kind of nod to Batman. And what I saw felt a little cheap in terms of like when he comes out. So some of the reasons why he dons the cowl versus when he doesn't, 
didn't seem very significant to me in terms of like, oh, I, I get that agency, but that doesn't seem to fit into the mold of why Bruce exists and why Batman exists. And along those same lines, Batman as a character, or even Bruce as a character, is naturally brooding and he's not one to make a lot of jokes. And so some of the time when he's able to bring some of the humor, it either doesn't land for me personally or I echo a little groan <laughs> when I hear him say something. There's a particular thing that he does near the end of the movie where I'm like, oh, no, did you really do that? Come on, Bruce. You're better than that. In fact, you're wearing the Batman outfit. and You should be better than that. It's not a deal breaker by any means, but he does stick out. And when you have these other three characters doing their thing and then you have Batman rolling in and I'm like, he's a detective. He's not a ninja. What's the deal here? But it doesn't take away from my enjoyment of the film as a whole. Yeah, I echo much of what you guys are saying. I mean, I would say I feel all the same way exactly. In fact, I would go as far as to say as a Batman fan, as a Batman guy, that Batman's presence in this movie makes it worse for me. And that's just to say that I think I would enjoy it more without him because it, he feels so forced into the world. And I understand what they're going for with the Batman Begins angle of, you know, Bruce disappears and he gets martial arts training. And so, of course, it can be tied into that's where he met these guys. And so then he's got these things to do along with them, these quests to take on. It makes sense. But just because it makes sense doesn't make it feel right. Nobody else is running around in a costume. You know, nobody else is any sort of superhero kind of aspect. The the only thing you have is the sword, which multiple characters end up having to use. And the sword is really the magical artifact that is at the heart of all of this. And then you've got Batman over here, like throwing batarangs at villains out of nowhere. And it just, it feels forced. That's the word. I mean, there's a, there's a moment in the final action sequence that I just cringed at because it really, allows Batman to make him look like he's better than these other guys. And we don't see that throughout the training of the film. So in the course of the film, he's maybe their equal <laughs> at best. Uh, and in a lot of ways, he's not. And then, you know, it kind of ends up trying to make him into their leader and into the best of them in some ways. And it's just, I don't know, it just doesn't quite jive perfectly to use a 70s word um again not bad though also didn't like snakes i'm with you Coles. the villain is forgettable but there are so many snakes in this movie it's all about snakes and i hate snakes i have a literal phobia of snakes so when one of the very first scenes in the movie is somebody getting killed by freaking an entire room of king cobras and i was like ready to check out i mean just not cool not cool at all for me uh that was a difficult one so um yeah didn't love it, but it's definitely one I enjoyed and I would watch again. I just don't think that there's any meat there to have me like put it high on any sort of ranking system. Yeah, I got this weird comparison when I was thinking about this film last night. I was thinking about Birds of Prey, you know, that was released last year and how most people felt that honestly it should have been just a Harley Quinn film 
and maybe leave out Birds of Prey in the title because it maybe felt like very disingenuous with how much time the Birds of Prey were on the screen at the same time. This film felt like it should have just not been Batman, Soul of the Dragon. It should have just been Soul of the Dragon. It just had these characters, the supporting characters, leading it out. And maybe Batman could be in there as a minor piece. Because when you put Batman, Soul of the Dragon, you're hoping to see a lot of Batman. And like you said, like you both said, there wasn't a lot of him in this film. <laughs> yeah, I think an alternate title that we came up with was Soul Brothers of the Dragon. I think that would have been more appropriate. I I wanted to go with Batman Beginters the Dragon. <laughs> this is why we podcast. This is why yeah. we do even Winner. <laughs> Winner right here. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's Batman Soul of the Dragon, everyone. It will be available on 4K Combo Pack and Blu-ray on January 26th. Like I said, special features are pretty cool. Uh, in addition to the two featurettes I mentioned, you get a preview of the upcoming Justice League World War II film that's going to be the next DC Universe uh, installment. And then you get a couple of look backs at uh, previous DC Universe films. One of them is Superman Red Sun. One of them is Batman Gaslight by Gotham or Gotham by Gaslight. Sorry, had that backwards. And then you also get two episodes of the Batman animated series, and they don't tie in in any way whatsoever. So there's no reason to think that, but there, there's like, I, I forget what they are. Night of the Ninja is one, and like Day of the Samurai, I think, might be the title of the other. Um, so they're tangentially related to the theme, kind of martial arts theme of this film, but they're not connected story-wise in any way but kind of cool to get a couple episodes of batman the animated series so like i said i like the disc i think it looks and sounds phenomenal um and i would recommend it you can also purchase it on digital as of right now it is available anywhere you buy your movies online well guys before we get off we are gonna do a quick round table of streaming favorites i've decided this was a good time to do this mainly because i've been watching a whole lot of movies in january and so i wanted to recommend some things but i thought maybe you guys would have something as well i'll get us started and then we'll go around the table i have been trying to fill in some of my miyazaki blind spots recently uh, my Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki blind spots. And it has been an absolute joy for me to do that. I think the one that I started with on this kick was Porco Rosso. And it's one that I've kind of avoided up until now because it's like this pig man driving or flying a plane and it just didn't look good to me at all. This is what I've learned over the course of this experience, folks, is... I, I'm done doubting Miyazaki and I'm done doubting Studio Ghibli films because they're all excellent to me. They're only varying levels of excellence. And this one blew me away, frankly. I, I was completely shocked at what I got in Porco Rosso. It's much more adult story. It's a real serial adventure, kind of swashbuckling type of film. Um, the elements of fantasy are minor. And you would think, because it's got a pig man on the cover, like, it's going to be really fantastical and whimsy, but it's not. Everybody else is humans in the movie. Um, and it plays it really pretty straight. Um, loved it. Thought it was outstanding. Um, also caught up with The Tale of Princess Kaguya, which was a Takahata film. 
his last one, unfortunately, before he passed away. And it is a five-star masterpiece. It is incredible. It's got these beautiful charcoal drawings and watercolors. And it's just an incredibly moving fable and story that hit me like a gut punch. And it just did not let up. I, I couldn't stop thinking about it for a long time. And I've gone through a few others. Uh, I've gone through Palm Poco, which is another, I think, Takahata film. And it's about raccoons or tanuki in japan and it's kind of like princess mononoke it's all about these like tanuki who are having their land taken over by urban development in japan and so they're like fighting back but they're magical and so they have these magical pouches that allow them to transform into humans and stuff and so they like basically try to play tricks on the humans to get them to leave them alone and it's got this it's a little bit long honestly but it is really charming and just i was shocked at how much i enjoyed that one the kingdom of dreams and madness there are two miyazaki documentaries on hbo max as of january all you, all these films by the way you can find on hbo max that's where you can get them for free and the kingdom of dreams and madness is one from 2013 that actually followed miyazaki and the production of his, at the time, final film, he is working on another one now, but he retired for a section of time in the mid-2010s there, and it was before he made Whisper of the Heart, and it follows him through this, and it, it's, it almost could be like a making-of documentary on, you know, a special features disc somewhere, but it is one of the most intimate, like, personal looks at a human being artist that I've ever been able to witness and I am so thankful to experience this man in this way it is gentle and serene just like a Studio Ghibli film is and getting to see Studio Ghibli itself guys you wouldn't you understand why the films that they make come out with the feelings that you get from them the calmness their studio looks like that it's just this beautiful building in the middle of other buildings and like out kind of with a, a woody area and these gardens around it and it's just it's just very gorgeous um it's not like stuffed into a city you know block in this big skyscraper or something like that and the way that they work echoes that location that their building exists in we get to see miyazaki draw and color, which was a big joy. And we also get to learn that he's actually kind of depressed or was back in 2013, which was shocking to me, but he's very open about his feelings on life and some of the things that get him down. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. One of my favorite documentaries ever, honestly. I, I couldn't recommend it enough. And the last one that I caught up with was called The Secret World of Arietti. I watched it last night and again, super impressed by this one from 2010 about a young girl who is a tiny little person and it's about her and her family's experiences you know being found out by a young teenage boy who's sick in this home and the adventures that they have uh, together and the struggles of you know being found out by other humans that want to exploit them because they're these magical little people etc um, it's absolutely charming and it has one of the best soundtracks i've heard in years just an absolutely gorgeous score um, by a french musician she made this she was the first person to ever do a score for studio ghibli that was not japanese and she knocked it out of the park so that one will always stick with me. Just it, it's a another sweet, you know, film that is going to hit you in the feels. But the music for that one stuck out. So guys, like I am just 
loving it. And all of these are first time watches for me. So I'm getting to experience them fresh and new. And I'm so thankful that HBO Max has this partnership with Studio Ghibli and allows me to do that. I've still got a couple of them left to go and probably will finish those out here in the next week. Uh, Patrick, what about you? Have you been watching anything lately that you could recommend? Yeah, I'm, I'm in a rewatch season of my life right now, just revisiting some things. And it's funny, this is turning into the, this will probably turn into the HBO Max love party is what this is, because both, both of these things are on HBO Max. Uh, the first one is the, the movie Swingers from 1996. This is a five-star movie through and through for me. I absolutely fell in love with it. When it came out, I was, I think, either a junior or about to be a senior in high school. And it's the story of John Favreau becoming an actor in Hollywood. That's what it is. He's a screenwriter. It's essentially a an autobiography of his story, moving to L.A. after a breakup and trying to start his life over as an actor. He partners up with Vince Vaughn, his best friend, in the movie and in real life. And it's charming. And that word would not be used to describe how I felt about it in 96. Hilarious would probably be what I would probably sum it up as. And it's still that. But it's one of those movies that help coin phrases like, you're a beautiful baby. You're so money. And, you know, come here, baby. You know, it's this interesting masculinity, like love for your bro kind of story. And it's wrapped up in this really simple screenplay, this really simple but clever story where as a director and a writer, you want to just kind of latch onto that. And that's the story I want to write. I want to write a simple story where I can put in inside jokes and I can have fun on set and I can invite my friends who are aspiring actors to come out and play themselves and tell this story that can be cathartic. Now, I don't want to experience what John Favreau did, obviously, but I think that a movie like Swingers allows for the possibility to use writing as a catharsis and to see it kind of played out on screen and then to turn into what it did. It's just fascinating and fun. It makes me feel good. And also it reminds me that John Favreau was young once. Like I know him now as chef and the director of elf and iron man and he's made a name for himself behind the camera but to see him play this part and to just be who he is alongside his best friend vince vaughn it's just fun to watch them and the chemistry they have together but as you know looking at it from a director's point of view i'm watching these camera angles like how they follow these four characters all the way through. So it centers around him mainly and and Vince Vaughn's character, but they have a couple of other folks, two or three other folks that are part of their crew. And there are times when it's very meta. They're talking about Scorsese and Tarantino films. And then a scene later, it's actually depicted as an homage to, <laughs> to uh, a scene in Reservoir Dogs. So you're able to just see these young actors and these young filmmakers trying to do whatever they can to just get practice, to just get used to what it's like to make a film. And what you end up with is something that is almost 25 years old, or it is 25 years old this year, 
that still feels like a classic. I love the costumes. I love the the settings. I wanted to live in L.A. after watching this, and I wanted to go learn how to swing dance. And I think more than anything, my film should have Heather Graham in it at some point because she is just enchanting in this. I've always loved the things that she's in. She is just she's beautiful. She's like Blake Lively to me. Like she's just very elegant, has a classic feel to her, and she comes across like very innocent with a little bit of kind of an edgy vibe to her. She's like the PG thirteen girl that they're referring to in the in the movie. And it it's one of those films that you look at and you go, Wow, this is slice of life and it's clever and it's not how people talk normally, but it's how I want to talk. And you kind of want to be these people in some parts. And then in other parts of the movie you're like, man, I'm glad I'm not them. So I think it's something that any kind of aspiring filmmaker or actor should watch just because I think it hits at some of those vulnerable points about what it means to struggle and what it means to start over. But even from a technical standpoint, I think it allows any kind of filmmaker to see, okay, if I want to create a two-part conversation like with two people, here's how you can do it in a diner. And it, it just seemed very experimental. And it was almost like the showcase of how can we tell this story and still incorporate some of these techniques that we're trying to learn. I have no idea if that was the case. Maybe it wasn't. But for me, watching it with those kinds of eyes, it really kind of opens it up as giving it a lot more, just a new, a new kind of value for me. So that's on HBO Max. I'm also rewatching the six-part documentary called McMillions, which focuses on the monopoly scam back in the early 2000s that i didn't the first time i watched this i was like there was a scam with monopoly at mcdonald's what and it takes six episodes to tell the story but it anchors itself in with the uh the lead guy at the fbi telling kind of how they found out about this it came from a little post-it note that he saw on his boss's desk and the guy that's telling the story one of the central figures on the fbi he is such a goof like he is very much like a teenager when he talks to the camera because he's all about having fun. He's like, dude, I just wanted to get out of the boring day-to-day stuff that I was doing in Florida. And I see this, what? McDonald's scam? Uncle Jerry, what's this about? And you see this thing play out and it's done in a way that feels lighthearted. But the things that come to light as a result of the story that they're telling are just bizarre. Like how the people that won were connected, what the stuff was going on behind the scenes, like why they got chosen, how the mob got involved. And the through line to all this is this guy named, it's referred to as Uncle Jerry. And each episode sort of teases, okay, how did he get the pieces? How did he get the pieces? And you don't find out until like the last half hour of episode six. And so when you do, you're like, oh my gosh, it couldn't have been that. It couldn't have been that. That that seemed too obvious. But it's a great kind of a mystery experience as you're going through this these half dozen episodes, like 45 minutes a piece. But it feels like a docudrama. Like it feels like these people don't exist. And part of the reason it feels that way is because 
they kind of throw in that old 90s unsolved mysteries technique where they do little reenactments. So you'll hear an actual person that's being interviewed talk about an experience and they'll create these fictitious scenes of like reenacting, but they'll blur out the faces a little bit or make them out of focus. And so you're actually seeing this play out on, in front of you while you're hearing the actual person telling the story. So watching it is not just a guy in front of a camera with ominous music playing over him. There's some real entertainment value that comes from that. And so, you know, I've seen it before, but that entertainment value is why I wanted to go back and, and watch it and kind of pay more attention to some of the details. So yeah, McMillions are both, uh, and, and swingers are both on HBO max. If you got it, go check them out. All right, Coles, what are you going to recommend on HBO max? <laughs> or are you going to break from tradition right. and go with something else? I'm going to break the chain per se. Um, I have a couple of films that are both on different services. The first one is on Amazon Prime. And like you, Aaron, I've been trying to carry out some goals of mine as far as film watching, mostly trying to watch anything associated with the Oscars. I mean, it was, if it was nominated or did it win anything, I'm trying to see that, you know, just to gain uh, education for myself and to also fill out some longstanding blind spots and 2005's Brokeback Mountain was one of them. I remember when the film first came out, and I mean, it was everywhere. I mean, there was controversy around it, of course, because during that time, you know, the views on the LGBTQ community were still kind of old-fashioned, and, you know, they didn't have as much rights as they did, and there wasn't a lot of tolerance in the world for um, these kind of people, but this film was actually one of the first experiences to show me that you know, LGBTQ, they love just like, you know, people who are straight love as well. I mean, love transcends a sexual orientation. And Heath Ledger, Jake Gyllenhaal, in this film, they play two lovers who have gotten together in 1960s Wyoming. And one, they, they're they working for this guy who is um, herding up sheep in this mountain. And so they end up spending time together and they end up falling for each other. And they go back to their regular life, you know, they get married and they have kids, but over time, over the, the span of like at least 20 years, this connection continues and they see each other off and on. And you come to see that these guys, I mean, they love each other, they have passion for each other, but they're never going to be able to live out, you know, their fantasy of really being together because they live in a society that is still ignorant and a society in where they could be killed if anybody even knows that they are gay. And it really brings us back to we may have made much stride, especially nowadays when it comes to the LGBTQ, but we have to remember all the struggle and the pain and the turmoil they had to go through to get the rights they had. I mean, we're not far removed from there being protests when it came to the um, death of Matthew Shepard in 1998. Uh, we're still not far away from the rhetoric we still hear online, you know, concerning slurs toward um, homosexual. But this film is an education for anybody who wants to become more open instead of being closed-minded when it comes to same-sex relations. I mean, Heath Ledger, this is probably the best I've seen him. This performance rivals even what I got from him as the Dark Knight. And Jay Gyllenhaal further cements himself as one of my favorite working actors with the job he does in here. And then we also get nice supporting roles from Anne Hathaway and... We get Michelle Williams. And there's a lot of other actors that I can't really name off the top of my head, but it's a great ensemble cast. The cinematography is gorgeous. You get to see these nice 
views of the mountain, the valley, the just the environment, just the awe of it all. It, it it speaks to a level of intimacy and a level of um, you know, masculinity that is open, that's very vulnerable. And I honestly, what what hurts me the most for this film is just the way it ends. It's a very very sad film, not an easy watch. Um, I would recommend, but I would recommend it definitely for someone to watch. Is it's a must watch at least if you're going to see it one time. And the next one I have on my list is something I just saw today, and it's a perfect murder. It stars Michael Douglas, Gwyneth Paltrow. It's on this. Is, actually, you know what? I'm not breaking the chain. This is on HBO Max. <laughs> well and done. The thing that came across my mind watching this thriller is that we don't get solid thrillers like this anymore. These days, you're not going to get just something that's trying to get you into the seat and keep you entertained for at least an hour or an hour and a half. Now it's either the thriller has to be engrossing and complex or either you're going to get um, a poopy thriller, which is very generic. But these 90s thrillers that were just solid, entertaining, nothing more, nothing less, I mean, they have become instinct. And I love the premise of it. It's, very, it's pretty much an updated version of Dow M for Murder for all my Hitchcock fans out there involving a man who catches his wife cheating and he ends up trying to get rid of her by a murder for hire. But the murder for hire, even, even that angle features a kind of twist and turns and it keeps like lifting up the tension throughout until we get to the bitter end. And I enjoyed it. It, it. it was a great watch. Gwyneth Paltrow, this was her at the height of her career when she was in the middle of a hot streak in the late 90s. And Michael Douglas has always had a talent for playing um, slimy but yet sophisticated characters. You know, his character always reminded me of an updated version of Gordon Gecko. It said that now Gordon Gecko was just a man who's married and he's kind of controlling and a little bit jealous. Uh, so once again, that film is on HBO Max. And it's a nice Saturday night thriller for anybody, especially for couples. Awesome. Yeah. Couples who want to go to bed worried, given their spouse side eye, that they're going to have a hit out on them. <laughs> Maybe it will encourage, encourage couples to treat each other better because they don't want to get assassinated by, by the love of their life. Anyway, no, good recommendations, guys. Those are all awesome. Listeners, hopefully we have mentioned something that has sparked your interest and you will go check it out. If you do, come find us in the Facebook group or on social media and let us know. We will be back next week with our main episode, but until then... Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, Patrick and Coleste, for a great conversation, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter, but be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then... Stay positive and keep feeling film.